one, once again, I'm flattered to be in front of uh, an NMC audience. Uh, this group of people that's here has uh, awestruck me with your um, ability to conceive these issues for the entire enterprise of education in such big ways. So I, I'm humbled, first, to be here. Second thing I wanted to do before I started was to call into the room my colleague Stephanie Sesse and some of my friends here, Bill Shoebridge certainly has worked with Stephanie. Last Thursday, um, most of the members of the male members of the staff and one female member shaved our heads because Friday morning Stephanie was going into chemo. And we and so I come here less hair than I had a week ago Wednesday, but also kind of calling the spirit of struggle that's represented by my organization. And, and frankly, I'm bringing all my staff in here because it's an amazing group of people that's been able to do this work, about 20 years worth of work. We celebrate officially the first workshop at the beginning of February. But we've touched a lot of campuses, and if you don't know this work, I'm not gonna be talking about what we do today much. I'll mention a, a new initiative we have. But I'm really here to take you forward by going back. And where I want to take you back to is a, a cave about 8,000 years ago in Somaliland. And I want you to imagine with me the group of people that are sitting in that cave around a fire. And they're telling each other stories. And imagine what kind of stories those might be. Maybe this is before we think of organized religion or even the idea of myth or legend. They're talking about stories about crossing through processes, practical processes. And today I'm going to share with you what I think the secret of good storytelling it is. And I'm going to share it through a trip I've been taking for about three years. When I was talking with Phil yesterday, I said the trip took me to evolutionary biology. And Phil said, well, I am an evolutionary biologist. And suddenly I felt very hopeful that he wouldn't ask any questions, because this is not an area of my expertise. But there's been a lot of books written in the last period about the issue of why we're creative or why we're storytelling animals. And what was the evolutionary biological advantage of being good storytellers? And a lot of these books, and you know, my favorite is Brian Boyd's On the Origin of Stories, make the simple point that storytellers had an evolutionary advantage. Not only at the level of going out on the hunt and coming back with a better strategy on how to kill the big beast, but mostly on the level of how to build cohesion at the family level, the tribal level, and probably most importantly in the negotiation across the watering hole with the other tribe. And those storytellers, those folks who could capture an imaginative landscape, who could invent legends and myths about hunting and gathering processes, soon found that they were able to survive longer than those that couldn't. And here we are at the very beginning of language. And we think of this evolution through the mythic archetypes to the romantic archetypes, philosophic archetypes in our history. And it, it comes down to the fact that most of the stories that we think of as, you know, people like Joseph Campbell have talked about are part of our mammal 
bodies. They come up out of us through our life stage experience. And each of these levels are an attempt to work through the stories of our lives through narratives that capture what those struggles are like. And so I would imagine in this vision that you as educators understand the role of story inherently. That, you know, our colleague Roger Shank, who wrote a wonderful book called Tell Me a Story, talks about the fact that most of the important lessons of life, not the facts and figures, but the lessons of life, are learned by somebody we know, we love, or we're, you know, inspired by. And those lessons are the, are the tools of our values that we carry forward. And then we learn ideas, all of you as teachers, are best able to get people engaged in learning when you link those ideas to the meaningscape of your entry into the story of the subject, meaning why I studied physics, why I studied mathematics, why I'm here and excited as a teacher, we work through that with our teachers when we feel that they're living their excitement about the subject. And they do that often with some sort of story that takes them back to the source. And then finally, the story paradox is that we like people to be at a stage of evolutionary plateau in their own lives, of stability, to feel confident in what they're saying, but we're most moved by people who present their story as a period of vulnerability, as a period before they've come to a specific conclusion about who they are going to be. And that's a call to many of us to, to think about what stories we tell as authorities and what stories we tell from our vulnerable confusion about where we're headed. This process has led me to think about a multi-stage model, which is a kind of evolutionary helix, about the different kinds of stories that are being told. And today I'm going to present it through a, a book that I've recently read called The Evolving Self uh, by Robert Keegan, a Harvard psychologist, that presents, as, you know, I'll do this as quickly as I can, um, a simple idea that most of our evolution through our life stages, comes as a paradigm, a dialectic between our agency, our independence, and our communion, our connection, or, or our connecting to other people. And we understand that as beginning, obviously, from the womb and our bond with our mother or our parents, but moving quickly through this impulsive stage where we learn through our parents how to control our natural impulses to a stage, the imperial stage, which is where we learn that we have impulses and that we can control them ourselves through the adolescent stage of learning that we need to see others' stories as counting as much as our stories so that we can honor them by honoring us. And that we move to a, finally to these adult stages of understanding the controlling factor in running our whole life is inside our whole head at a great level of independence and control. And then finally, a kind of larger understanding of our connection uh, as people who are trying to live in society and live broadly in society, and in a sense, prepare ourselves for the next generation stepping forward. And what I want to suggest is that the stories that you have to tell, 
can be mapped in a series of stages that you return to again and again as you go through these, these you know, crises in your life, whatever they are, that allow you to go back and look at the story of your coming to be. Often the stories are, are linked to your, you know, fundamental uh, attachment or your ability to connect with your uh, uh, original tribe, original family, through stories of learning to deal with control and impulse, with stories to learning about belonging and acceptance, to stories about love and connection, to stories about justice and dignity, and to stories of rebirth through, you know, the largest insight, when, you, when often you're facing a life-ending crisis. Now, these stages don't have to go in a every seven years, every 10-year basis, but I think you'll see that you'll revisit these stories again and again in your own struggle around these issues. I'm going to share a story as an example from a workshop we did around social engagement with the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I, I bring it up because it comes from the, the state of Texas and uh, originally. And it's a story that links to, to the example of the way this works, I think, in an effective way. The last night of my junior year in high school, when I was 16 years old, I put an end to my father's beating me with a garden hose. He'd escalated to this weapon for his wholly unjustified punishments some years earlier. When he brought that hose whooshing down on my backside, the purple welts that rose in my flesh hurt deeply for days after. On the night in question, as I made my way through the darkened house toward the room I shared with my brother, I sensed my father's presence before in the dim light discerning him with that hose in hand. He ordered me to lie down on the bed, as I'd always done, but it suddenly came to me that I didn't have to take this any longer. My refusal triggered a struggle in which he tried to force me down. I responded by wrapping my arms around his neck and lifting my feet from the floor so that I hung dead weight down the front of his body, absorbing all his energy. Within seconds, he went limp with exhaustion. I took my arms from around his neck and stepped back. Three decades later, in nonviolence training for my first civil disobedience at Rocky Flats, we did a role play called Deadweight, in which you contain someone's belligerent behavior by hanging yourself deadweight down that person's torso. Tears burst from my eyes. Amazingly, what I'd done spontaneously at age 16 was being taught in carefully designed nonviolence training. My father, I realized, without knowing that he was doing so, had made a great gift to me, for he had planted within me the seed of nonviolence. An eventual fruit of nonviolent resistance 
by many was ending production at Rocky Flats of nuclear bombs, the extremity of violence. You know, I've helped maybe between five and 10,000 people tell stories. And the more I thought about it, the more um, this feeling that um, a lot of people come to us and we talk about coming to an insight about what the story is about for you right now. It could be any story that you pull out of your uh, life experience. But it often came to me that, that what people are working through is this kind of place just before they came to some important understanding about who they are, about their construction of identity. Our work is based now much more in human services than it is in education. As a result, I think we're suddenly very kind of consumed with the, the therapeutic role of story. And we're very thoughtful about the way that people come to us, even, you know, teachers. And when we come to the campuses, we find a lot of teachers are not really dealing with their mental health that well. There, there's a lot of issues that are going on personally that when you ask, start asking them questions about what's going on in their life, they can't uh, go there that easily. They can't let go of the control to look at this vulnerable place that they're headed. But what I've found is that if they'll take the chance, like Leroy did, to kind of go back and look at a really fundamentally ugly moment of abuse that he suffered by his dad, and look at the moment of that rupture when he finally said no, and expand that out on his uh, commitment, his role as an educator around nonviolence, you are able to capture for us not just a story of his bravery, but a story inside each one of us of moving out of this feeling of isolation or, or developmental delay into something new. The feeling I had is that we are most attracted to stories that are just at this pregnant moment before the big evolutionary change. And that all of you have stories of some part of your life where you know that that change represented something major in this move from agency to communion. And if you look back on your life, you can find those stories. And you don't always have to go to like the moment of your fight with your dad. You can just source the energy of that and use that to inspire a story about your dog, a story about something that's not maybe the most emotionally uh, difficult area you want to deal with. As we say in our work, if you're in the story, you can't tell it. And many of us stay inside the stories of great trauma. We can't move past them. And so for us, the ability to, however, tap into the deep ugly, the hard place of a story is where the richness of these stories come out. And so the invitation is to find a way to do that. As I said, I wanted to spend just a minute talking about how this links to the work of my organization as an invitation to the NMC community about the way we're thinking about the role of story in the broader society in relationship to these issues. We're beginning a series of initiatives of pilots that touch on a number of issues about cross-generational dialogue, from the reasons that people become civic participants to the ways that young people are learning, social-emotional learning through their own stories, 
to the way that communities can use story as a way to plan and, and uh, preserve um, the issues of the environment around them, to documenting stories of service, service learning or volunteerism, and finally to carrying on the work of our project called Silent Speaks, which has been working in, in violence prevention for the last decade, mainly around gender. Um, focusing this time on the discussions between fathers and sons. Because as equivalently important to hearing Leroy's story, there's some part of me that wants to hear the echo of Leroy's father's story. What made him who he was. And why he found it impossible to break the cycle, even though his son was able to. So let me just finish by kind of going back to the cave and, and suggesting that you know, inside all of you are like tremendously beautiful stories that if you could tell, they would not only heal you, they would heal others. And, and I do feel in this big discussion about social emotional learning, which I brought up, that you know, this is a big, big part of the technology of the 21st century. We are dealing with such rapid change, but the changes inside us are slow. And they're almost evolutionary. We can be completely frustrated at how long it takes to get to the next plateau. But if we treat ourselves with the kind of respect, then we can have a wholeness, a wholeness that comes through story. And I wish that for all of you, and I look forward to hearing all of your stories. Thank you.